the advice I give to everybody is there's only one thing you need to listen to, and that's the voice that you don't listen to because the fear takes over or the excuses take over or the father or mother's voice takes over. We're all given through our experiences a gift of intuition and instinct, and we pave over it with cement because we have life experiences that hurt us and deny us opportunities and scar us or voices in our head that stop us. There's always that first gut feeling. And I liken it to being on Jeopardy. Mm. They say, if you're on Jeopardy, ring in. It doesn't matter if you don't know the answer because the first thing that comes up in your brain is probably the right one. And people will say they've been on Jeopardy and they're like, I, I, you, a thousand times I bet in your life you said, oh, I thought of that first, but then I changed my mind. It's always the first thing. So what I say to everyone who asks me is, listen to and follow your gut. Don't listen to anybody else. Hello and welcome to Inside Out. My name is Billy Samoa Salibi and I'm your host. Through interviews and case studies, I examine how transformational insights have helped propel the lives and careers of exceptionally successful people. These major breakthrough moments teach valuable lessons that will help us in business and in life. Today's guest is the multi-hyphenate and multi-talented Steve Truitt. Steve's led one of the most interesting lives of anyone I've ever met. He's been a television host, radio personality, author, life coach, and trainer. But what sets Steve apart are the experiences he's had along the way. From landing an interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger for his book, to making the Dalai Lama laugh while interviewing him, to meeting five of the 12 people that have walked on the moon, from reporting live from a helicopter during the LA riots, Steve's stories are truly remarkable. His career in entertainment and journalism is only the beginning of what we discuss as we also dive into some of the challenges he's faced throughout his life. He opens up about his long and painful divorce. He vulnerably shares the regret he has for passing up on what he says is the opportunity of a lifetime to be the TV news anchor. And he talks about the challenges he's had with his father and trying to live up to his expectations. Steve also shares how growing up with physical challenges as a child led to his quick wit and sense of humor, which has played a central theme throughout his life. He also somewhat reluctantly shares how he almost became the host of American Idol. We discuss the concepts from his book, Stop Waiting for Permission, and how the themes he lays out have played a part in his own life. I've known Steve for years, having worked together at Varengo, Solar City, and Tesla, but the conversation revealed stories that even I hadn't heard before. I had such an amazing time interviewing him. What a fun experience. And I'm so delighted to share his incredible life story on this episode of Inside Out. Steve Truitt, welcome to Inside Out. Thank you. And I can say that you are the first person who ever uttered the words inside out. Well, maybe not the first person, but in context of this show, the idea of calling it inside out came from you. So first and foremost, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Don't know if you recall the conversation, but was sharing the idea of the podcast that, that I was creating and gave you the 30 second or maybe three minute sort of pitch. And you instantly 
came up with the concept of Insight Out. So thank you for that. Sure. And thank you for being on the show. We've uh, managed to get our schedules to align to have you come to Insight Studios and you're sitting here in my garage, (laughs) which is the studio. And I just got to say, man, you and I got to know each other back early in my solar days, your very beginning of your solar days. And I've learned so much from you. You've had such an impact on me professionally. And I... I'm so thrilled to have the opportunity to discuss your life and your story because it is so interesting. You have led a life that not many people can say they have anything, anything even remotely close to the type of life you've led. So why don't we begin there? I'd love it if you could share your story. Happy to do it. But first, I just want to let your listeners know something a little bit about you. And that is that, and I don't mean this lightly, I have said this to many people, you saved my life. So I was in the dumps. You've told many people they, they've saved yes. your life? No, or- <laughs> yes, I've told many people. The guy, the crossing guard, I said, dude, you saved my life. No, a lot of people know this about you. I, I was in a horrible period of transition and completely lost. No career, no family. I'd just been divorced. And I guess I'm starting in the middle of the story, but this is where everything changed for me was I, I had an interview with a guy named Billy Salibi at Varengo Solar. And we sat down and you said, I'm going to take a chance on you. I had not really, I'd never worked in solar. I'd not really been in corporate. And that was the start of a whole new career for me. And it was because of you. So I owe you a great debt debt of gratitude. So thank you. Well, thank you. And it was an easy decision. Certainly, I don't think I actually said, I'm going to take a chance on you, but you might've felt that. I think, yeah, I felt that way. Going back and I remember meeting you and I remember thinking to myself, This is somebody that is going to win over every person that you talk to because you have that type of personality. Uh, You are charismatic. You're funny. You are probably the most witty person I've ever met. You managed to come up with a joke in an instant. I'm literally pulling my thumb off my thumb right now. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) In a nanosecond, you come up with a funny... Sometimes they're dad jokes. I'm not going to lie. That's true. But often they make me just giddy with laughter. So we'll talk about that sense of humor, but let's get back to the story. So you started sort of midway through. Go back further. I think the audience would find some value in knowing the early days of Steve Truitt. I mean, go back as far. I mean, where were you raised? Go back to the go back to the early days and let's let's hear the, the Steve Truitt. Okay, the elevator pitch. Well, I was born in Wisconsin, in the same town that Harry Houdini grew up in, Appleton, Wisconsin. It's a good fun fact. Yeah, very proud of that. In those days, in the early uh, middle '60s, I should say, we had apple tree fights. We'd pull apples off the tree and throw them at each other, and it was a very midwestern existence. In the winter, snow drifts would be so high that my brother and I would jump out our second story window and slide down into the snow. And we put candles in paper bags in the winter and sunk them into the snow and they would light up the snow. And it was a very American upbringing. Same with my upbringing in Connecticut. We moved there when I was a little bit older and I ended up going to high school there and then college at University of Maryland. So I'm pretty much an East Coaster. And, you know, you mentioned funny Steve. I had a lot of trauma as a kid. My parents were divorced early. My father was a very difficult type of person. My brother was a drug addict. It was a tough time for me. How old were you? Well, my parents divorced when I was 12, but I mean, it was, I I remember being seven years old, wishing they would get divorced. Mm. And I had physical issues. I was born without a sternum bone. And so I have a very indented chest and I got teased as a kid. And the comedy really came 
as a survival mechanism for me. Um, I, there's a really weird thing about me. I didn't share it in the book, which we'll talk about later, but I didn't go through puberty till I was 17. And I remember being a 15, 16 year old. I was driving a car at 16, having to sit on a phone book. I don't know if your listeners know what a phone book is, but uh, <clears throat> there was what's a time when <laughs> numbers were stored on a book. That's true. And you had to flip through it. And so it was just tough. And so, you know, girls weren't interested in me. So I became funny and I really tapped into that humor. And funny Steve, you know, came out of all of the trauma and the tragedy that I had as a kid. And it got me through. Mm. Uh, and I credit Steve Martin because I used to sit, you know, in my basement and listen to Steve Martin albums on vinyl over and over and over again. And I think that's where I got that humor was just almost that self-deprecating humor where you're the dumbest in the room, but you're actually the smartest in the room and right. no one knows it. That's so funny. Yeah. And I love his humor. Yeah. Um, now I, I can, oh man, that's just, I didn't know that, but that makes a ton of sense. Your sense of humor in many ways mirrors the type of sense of humor he has. It that, does. That's really interesting. There's a great joke that he, that I heard he was having a party and it was all of his good friends that knew him very well talking about Steve Martin. And someone was saying, some woman was saying, oh, Steve, when I first met you 30 years ago, you didn't even know what a pashmina was. And without missing a beat, he goes, and now I drive one. <laughs> That's very much a Steve That's joke. very Steve Martin joke. <laughs> so somebody said, you should be in Hollywood. And at the time I was working in Stanford, Connecticut, and I just made the decision to go to Los Angeles and see what would happen. And it was a six month experiment, which is now going on 28 years. But I came out here in 92, three months before the LA riots mm. hit. And I'd got a job at Metro Traffic producing traffic reports for on-air talent. So these guys were reading the traffic. I'm producing it. I'm writing it out. I'm looking at CHP code and I'm transcribing it for them. And I'm giving them these reports. And that was my job. And the riots break out. And our airborne reporter at the time was recovering from throat node surgery and they needed someone to report. So the first time I ever was on the air and the first time I was ever in a helicopter was during the riots. Wow. And I, I drove up to Van Nuys terrified. I'd never taken off in a helicopter. You know, you, in a plane, you go down the runway and you, you lift. This thing just jumps out of the ground. We're up there. I was petrified. And, you know, I went on the air. I can't remember what station it was, maybe KABC. But that was my first experience doing that. And when I landed, the boss said, do you want a job? And I said, sure. And then I, I started doing airborne traffic reporting. And one day I got a sidekick job on one of our radio stations because Susie Landolfi, who at the time was a sex therapist on the air, said she liked my reports. You know, would I kind of be your sidekick? And so I started doing that. And we were doing sex therapy shows and it was fantastic. And we did appearances at Sit and Sleep and, you know, all that stuff. And from that, somebody said, you should try television. And I got a manager and an agent and I started doing TV. And I was on, uh, I was doing double duty as a, as a um, breaking news reporter for news and then also hosting television shows. You know, when we, when you first came to interview at Varengo, I distinctly remember that you had, you actually had a job at that point working radio and you were doing the overnight, doing, doing traffic and things of that nature. And I got to listen to you and you could hear your personality on the radio. I mean, it's just clear as day that you have that gift for connecting with humans in a way that's very natural and authentic. You're you and you bring yourself to whatever, whether it be TV or radio or in somebody's living room, helping them go solar or in front of the room as a trainer, as a coach. I think that pays huge dividends when you can be that authentic person, but also infuse and inject that, that humor that, 
makes people, their wall goes down as a result. And it's interesting that you attribute that to growing up and maybe you had some issues with maybe getting teased or maybe yeah. getting bullied. And I don't think that's an uncommon story, especially for comedians or people that do have a sense of humor and who have developed that gift that they, it came out of something like that. I'm curious. So you, you, you decided to come to LA. Do you remember the person who's, who planted that seed that got you to yeah. take that journey? And- yeah. And I wasn't going to get too much into it, but I'll, I'll say really quickly, it was my sister. Her name is Susan. And she was living in Stanford, Connecticut at the time. I was living in Norwalk and I was working at the World Wrestling Federation. Back then it was the World Wrestling Federation, not WWE, for Linda McMahon. I was one of her assistants and I was working in the HR department and I was writing their weekly newsletter. And I was 25 and it was the first George H.W. Bush recession. Mm -hmm. And even though WWF was making boatloads of money, they still laid off a ton of people. And I was one of the people who got laid off. I was gotcha. surprised. And I called my sister and she goes, come to lunch. And we met for lunch. And I'm just like, what am I going to do? I don't know what to do. And I was 25 and had everything in front of me. I had no relationship. I had no job. And she's like, go to LA. You, you've got something. See what happens. And in three months, I got on a train. I, t- I decided to take the train across the country. I had a guitar, a small, <laughs> a small uh, trunk. It and a writing pad, and I spent five days traveling across the country by train, which is an entirely other episode we should do someday, because I was even thinking about doing a one-man show about it. It was the people I met and the experiences I had would blow you away. This is the the challenge that I have with us talking right now is where to begin with you. I know. Because you've led such a fascinating life. I mean, so many unique experiences that again, going back to my original thought and comment is nobody's had even remotely close to the life you've had. And it's not only because you've had a life where you've done things in the entertainment business, but you've reinvented yourself Mm -hmm. multiple times. You're an author. You've taken the talents that you've had and you've applied it in the corporate space and training. You've been a life coach. You're a trained hypnotherapist. You've studied in NLP. I mean, so many different things that have really, I th- there's a through line is it's the connection that you, that you build with other people and helping them either get better or in some way improve their life, which resonates with me because that's a calling that I feel is something special to me. And yeah. so I see that in you as well. I'm curious When you think back and you look at your life relative to the theme and topic of this podcast and and think about insights, what are some insights that stand out to you that have been, we'll just call them pivot points, and they're an exclamation mark in your life where something happened, an event happened, clearly your sister sharing with you that you have this it factor, you should go to LA. Curious what other insights have come about that have been really, really revolutionary in your life? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And obviously it fits with the theme of all of this. I've had so many, but the one I think that hit me the hardest, and it's been an, a slow boil to get to this insight. It happened with, I got divorced in 2013, my whole life upside down. And I, that's an understatement. I, I lost everything, a house, my wife, I had two children. I had to deal with that. I had no job at that point. And from that moment to this moment, I've come to realize that the greatest insight of my life is that my life is mine. And I think, I know that sounds almost cliche in a way, but I spent the better part of my 
47 years before my divorce, just desperately trying to make everyone around me happy mm. and failing at it miserably. I couldn't make my father happy. I couldn't make my brother happy. I couldn't make my wife happy. I couldn't make my mother happy. I couldn't make my sister happy. I couldn't make my girlfriends happy. I couldn't make myself. And I was trying to see in them a reflection of my success as a human being. So that's one side of it. The second side is what I never realized, and this is the insight that's starting to hit me now, is that I truly believe that the reason I've had so many experiences, and you're right, I've had a lot of fascinating ones, is because I have taken so many risks, sometimes at my own peril, but it always ends up being a great story. And I, there's something about me that needs that. And I've, I used to think I was cursed, and then I thought I was blessed, and then I thought I was lucky. And then I thought I was confused. It's just, I am a stone that skips along the top of the water. I will never sink into it. I, I go from little wave to little wave to little wave to little wave. And I see and experience and do. And it took a long time for me to come to that realization because it's literally the last thing my father would be proud of. You know what I mean? Totally. I'm curious. I think one of the insights that I'm gleaning from this is your natural state or your tendency has been to actually embrace getting in a, in a situation where you're out of your comfort zone, where maybe it's not something that is the normal. You want that unique experience. Curious, does that come naturally to you? Is it because you're trying to please other people and trying to figure out what is going to be the next way you can do that? Or is it that you thrive in an environment where maybe it is unique or different? Because most people, they like to have consistency. They like to have the same regimented day-to-day -day, and they go through life. Let's just be super blunt about it. Kind of li living a mundane existence, a boring existence. And I hate to be so sort of general about it, but the, the reality is most people lead their life that way. You're not that way. You know, not many people can say they were up in the hel helicopter during the riots. Not many people can say they've interviewed Arnold Schwarzenegger for a book. Not many people can say that they went out and they totally reinvented themselves after a career in entertainment to go into the corporate world. And so what do you think the reason is that you do that, that you do seek different and unique experiences? Well, it is part of my makeup. And I think once I stopped apologizing for it, I really got to enjoy that part of myself. And I think that's the insight that you were talking about is it's endemic in me. It's just built in me. I, I don't call myself a nomad. I don't want to move to Montana and live in a shack. And write a manifesto. I want to be part of human society. And part of me is a, a very soul sick person. I really like to be in relationships, for instance. I really like to nurture uh, good friendships, right? I don't want to be an, a loner, but I really do have something inside of me that is constantly seeking something that's going to be a new experience. It does make me feel alive. And I didn't really even realize it until the last five years of my life. Mm. Getting space from oppressiveness. So what do I mean by that? I always surrounded myself with people that I felt I had to apologize for that, who almost made me wrong for it. My wife, my brother, my father, right? So once that space was cleared and I didn't really have anyone to apologize to anymore, I really started to enjoy being that person and thrive at the same time. Is there a pitfall or something that maybe has made you feel like because you're constantly seeking, you're not maybe going as deep or you're not spending enough time on one thing? Walk me through if that is 
a reality or not? Or do you feel good about the fact, we're going to talk about regrets later, so we don't need to get too deep into it, but I'm curious, have you ever felt like, hmm, maybe I should have done this longer, or maybe I shouldn't have done this at all? Or do you like that you've managed to have all these many stories within the, the, the larger thread of your life? Well, I like both, right? Because I think no matter what choice I make, right, left, or center, I'm going to find those moments and make those stories. That's something I like. I have, I, we'll save the regret section for later, like you said, but there was one pivotal moment in my life where I was offered a morning show host in Tampa, Florida at CBS, which was the number 13 market, and it was the number two station in town. And I was offered more money than any morning show host. And this is not morning show. This is TV news, but they wanted to make it more like what we're doing right now, fun and interactive. I was living in Los Angeles. I was about to have my second child. And that was it. The 15 years previous that I had spent building my entertainment career and entertainment careers by nature flipped from this to this to this show to show to show, right? So I was loving it. But here it was, morning show anchor. And I was ready to go. And this is a large reason why I got divorced was my wife at the time just said, nope, there's no way I'm going to Florida. You'll find another job. And I turned it down to make her happy. And that was my sliding doors moment. Mm. That was the moment where my entire life took such a giant pivot that it is 180 degrees from what it probably would have been. I would have gone to Florida, had my wife been on board, maybe still be married. And who knows? I could be on CNN right now. I could be hosting the Today Show after Matt Lauer got booted. Who knows, right? But I would have stayed in television and been that anchorman person and probably loved it. Did you at that point decide that you wanted to transition away from entertainment or was it that you just said no to this specific job? How, I guess, how soon after saying no to that specific job? And you've shared the story with me in the past. I I am aware of the story, but for the audience and, and, and for me, because I don't actually don't know what the timeline is. I know that you had this, this opportunity presented to you. You made the decision based on all the data points, not least of which is your wife's urging to not do it. And you made the decision to not take it. Curious, what was your next step after that? And at what point did you transition away from entertainment being your, your main priority? Okay. So it was 2008. And if you remember history, 2009 was the recession. So the decision point at that moment was the calculation, which was not intelligent at all, and I wasn't thinking, I was just trying to make my wife happy, was, okay, I'll turn this down. There's plenty of other opportunities. I'm on TV already. I was doing weekend traffic at that point for NBC. And Ted Chen and Carl Bell and I had built up the number one morning show on the weekends. And I thought, okay, well, that's something. So, okay, I don't go to Florida and be the highest paid morning show guy there. I'll stay here and take my chances here and and I'll get a job. That was my rationale. The next year I was let go from NBC And I was also let go from Sirius Radio, where I was doing a series of entertainment reports from the Variety building. So I would go to Variety every day and talk to the entertainment reporters there. And then I would write reports and I would do it on the air. So both jobs that I had, I was laid off from. And then I had nothing. 2009, then I took a job with Metro Traffic, which was the company that was hiring me in the beginning to do traffic reports. But I I became what's known as an affiliate relations vice president, a job I was completely unqualified for. I'd never been a vice president before. All I had was a TV resume. But the guy at Metro Traffic said, I want you to go around the country and talk to our news directors, because we had 165 news stations around the country Mm -hmm. for whom we were providing traffic, 
train the traffic reporters and try to keep, we were losing contracts all the time, try to keep the contract. So I was like the face of Metro traffic and I'm flying all around the country. And I did that for two years until I got laid off from that job because Westwood One, which owned Metro traffic, sold Metro traffic and cut rid. It's a very complicated story. No, no. I, I love, I mean, I, I want to understand because- It was a slow destruction from 2008 to 2012. Sure. Okay. And so you said you were doing some training. I'm curious- when did your love and passion for training come to, to be? And, and also, maybe this ties in or not, when did you start transitioning and thinking about an LP, start thinking about being a life coach, start thinking about writing a book? Walk me through that, because that, that intrigues me, because again, you're going from being this TV personality, this radio host, this all these things that you've done, and your career started to, to shift and as you said, you, you use the word slow destruction. Yeah. Curious, part of that slow destruction was also planting seeds for what would ultimately become your now career, which Correct. is in learning and development and, and coaching and helping people. Exactly. So think of it as a, do you remember in Indiana Jones, the first movie, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, when he's the very beginning and he's got that golden idol mm-hmm. and he wants to take it off the thing, but he has to, he has to replace it right, with the bag right, of sand. Right, 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 right. And how one goes, the other one goes on. <laughs> sure. That's what happened there. So as my TV career was waning, and I'm talking maybe 2005, I was still doing well, but I had taken a seminar at Landmark Education, which is essentially the Landmark Forum. It was a weekend seminar, and I just had an amazing time there and great breakthroughs and a really wonderful experience. I made a lot of friends. And one of my friends that I made there said, you should try NLP, which is Neuro Linguistic Programming. And so I went through a session where I was treated with hypnotherapy, and it was so successful, I thought, well, I could do this. So the next summer, I spent $3,500 and an entire summer and 180 hours later, I got my certification in hypnotherapy and neuro-linguistic programming. And I thought, well, what am I, I going to do with that? Right. <laughs> so I started to just one at a time take on clients and I would do breakthrough sessions and they were very intense all day. It's a form of therapy. It is a huge thing. And you know, it's, it's taking three years of weekly visits and putting it into 18 hours of really intense, like rip the, the band-aid off. Sure. Let's confront everything. And it's such a phenomenally successful form of therapy, neuro-linguistic programming, that if you do it right, people just shift their lives. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that for friends and then I got clients and at one point I was charging $10,000 a session and it was just I mean, it's gotta be fulfilling though, you, you know, regardless of the money part, yeah. it's gotta be fulfilling just being able to help people in the way that you Well, that's work. why I did it because you can't do it unless you're empathetic and connected. And that's me, right? And so at the end of the day, when they're wiped out, I'm wiped out because I'm there with them. It's a do with process. So I was doing that for a while. And then right around, I'm trying to remember the year, but right around the time my marriage started to go and my career was falling apart, my next door neighbor died Hmm. in his kitchen unexpectedly at 44 years old. And I found him like it was, I'll never forget this. It was a Monday morning, a week before Christmas. And my wife at the time and I were headed out to work and Mel, who's our neighbor, the coworker came and said, listen, Mel didn't show up for work. He never doesn't show up for work. We're worried. We had identical houses. And so I climbed up, I knew how to break in and I broke into his house and I found him there dead in his kitchen. He'd been there for two days dead. And it had such a profound impact on me. I'd seen dead people before, but I just talked to him two days earlier and it just, it just shook me to my core. And it took a long time for me to unshake myself. And at that time I was studying neuro-linguistic programming and all that. 
And I just thought to myself, here's a guy who literally worked himself to death. He worked for FedEx and he was working, I don't even know what it was, 70 hours a week. He was single. And he would say to me all the time, this, this job's going to kill me. And it did. And I just thought to myself, that just can't, that's the, the exact opposite of who I ever want to be. I don't want to be a slave to anything that's going to kill me. And so I decided to write a book. Right. Because that's what I do when I have emotions. I write things down. I'll write a song. I'll write a book. I just thought to myself, we've got to stop waiting for permission. And, and the book was written to me, for me, because I was the king of waiting for permission, making everybody else happy before I made myself happy, trying to prove something to somebody. And so the book was as much a therapy session for me as it was anything else. But I knew it wouldn't be interesting if I didn't bring in some real heavyweights as interview subjects. So I was working in entertainment at the time. I had some connections and I just started working them. I wrote the bones of the book in nine months. I had the whole thing written out, exactly what I wanted it to be. But I wanted to include these interviews. It took me two and a half more years to mm -hmm. get the interviews. And I got some amazing people. Well, first of all, let me just start by... I can only imagine what it was like to go into Mel's house and see him there. And I know this is one of the things that you mentioned early on in your book. Here's a 44-year-old guy that, to your point, you had a regular ongoing conversation, a likable guy, nice guy, but he was married to his job. And it was his job that ultimately led to him having a really a short life unnecessarily. And to your credit, you realized that that was a, almost like a wake up call in a, in a sense, not only for you not to be quote unquote married to your job, but to stop waiting for permission to stop asking or hoping people are going to forgive you. And what resonates with me is that you wanted to tell this story in a way that would hopefully inspire others to realize that life is finite. We only have so many moments of time to make the most of our existence. And so I think what you're trying to do in getting these stories assembled is to make the inspiration that much more tangible, that much more real and relatable to the audience. And so you did get some heavyweights. I know one of the people, I already mentioned this a minute ago, that you were you were dead set on was Arnold. Yes. And I love, I love that he was the person that you were so dead set on because yeah. he's somebody that I often think about. If, if you've seen, and I already mentioned this in one of my previous shows, but he talks about not having a net or a sort of a safety net. Right. I love that concept because I think all too often we have something that's going to be sort of our backup plan. He doesn't want plan B and he's never had a plan nope. B. Nope. So curious about that interview okay. and then the and then the others and then obviously we'll go into kind of the more modern day Stevie T. <laughs> but the book's fantastic and I'm just so grateful that you found the the courage to tell the story of yourself but also tell the story through all these other people. So yeah. why don't we start with Arnold and then and maybe you could share some of the others as well. So through the whole book I tease maybe I'm going to interview him but obviously now everyone knows I got him. It was impossible to get him the only way I was able to do it was because I was working for Sirius Radio still. It was 2008 when I was writing the book. I had become friends with Maria Shriver because I, every year Sirius Radio would cover the California Governor and First Lady's Conference on Women in Long Beach. And so I was down there every year covering it and I interviewed her and I got to know her. I interviewed her for the book. 
so the last year before I knew I was going to publish my book was her last year doing the conference. And I knew Arnold was going to be there that year. And so I didn't bother all day. I was there for two days. The day that he was there, I didn't even bother getting interviews. I didn't even do the job Sirius was paying me to do. All I did was follow his press person around begging. Can I talk to him? She's like, get away from me. I'm going to call the cop. Get away from me. Can I please talk to him? No, no, no. And it went on and it went on and it went on. And there was something about me. Suddenly that guy that wants to be liked, I don't care. I have to get this. And I, I won't give too much more away, but I I just hung in there. Persistence. Oh, I got it. But I got it on the run. He was walking while I was, I was walking with him. Like, I'm holding a microphone. I'm walking along with him. Mr. Mr. Governor, you know, and all that. It, but it was thrilling to hear what he had to say because all my questions for everybody were the same, which was, you're an example of not taking no for an answer. And I want to know where you got that. And his answer was great. I talked to Jenny McCarthy. At the time, Aaron Ralston was someone who is not very well known, but he was the guy who fell in Utah and got his arm caught between a boulder and, and the rock face. And he had to cut his arm off to get free. And they made that movie. At the time I interviewed him, it was before the movie came out. I was thrilled to, to get to talk to him. But two other people that I really wanted to talk to was, one was a guy he, I'm sure no one has ever heard of named Bert Rutan, who designed the first private spaceship to go into space, mm-hmm. Spaceship One, which is now Virgin Galactic's ship. He was a boat designer first, and then he became an airplane designer. Fascinating designs. If you look up in the sky and you see a weird plane, it's probably Bert Rutan's design. But he designed a sail for a 12 meter boat. Growing up in Connecticut, you watch a lot of sailing races. And the 12 meter race is called the America's Cup is every, I think, two years. And one year, instead of a 12 meter regular traditional boat, there was this short catamaran with this really weird sail. It was like a solid sail. It was actually a wing. Mm. And that was Bert Rutan's design. And that won that year. It was the first time anything had ever beaten a 12 meter boat. And I remember even as a kid, like, that's fascinating. That turned out to be Bert Rutan's design. I, I got a chance to meet him and talk about Scaled Composites, which is the company that he owns that created the spaceship. And But the number one uh, interview was one that I'd never done. It was just a story about my grandfather, who mm. in the 50s was one of the only people in the Midwest who was fighting for black rights. People were Black people were not allowed to buy certain buy houses in certain areas and he's like that's ridiculous and he fought the church and he, he fought his own church and he went to the mayor and the governor the governor and he that's got so cool. he got the laws changed my grandfather uh, nobody right and you know no one's ever going to hear of cecil young but he changed lives for so many people that's the second chapter in my book and he he remains one of my biggest heroes ever i love that you highlighted that and what an amazing story to to bring to life in in your book one of the things in your book that you talk about is the three p's of prosperity mm-hmm. wonder if you could share those and talk maybe a little bit about how you came up with those and i know you've used those in your coaching as well so curious if you could share i have and and it's one of the things that's confounded me as well it's, it's a tough concept so The three P's of prosperity are purpose, permission, and then position. So the first two for me have always been easy. I know what my purpose is. It's to affect the lives of other people and bring out the greatness in them. It's always been that for me. You mentioned earlier, I can talk to anybody. It's true. I I find, I see in people the best and I, I speak to that. The permission part is tough when you're young or you're insecure or you're not sure who you are giving yourself the permission to say, I know what my purpose is and I'm actually going to go get it. How, where, how many people stop there? Right. Like I've always, wanted, Such a good I've, point. I've always wanted to be a poet. I've always wanted to be a rock star. I've always, but I can't because I need, 
a paycheck or I need a thing or a thing or a thing, right? And so mm. the permission never comes. And it's not from anybody else. It's you, 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 period, end of story. It's up to you. You make your life. If you can get past that, well, then it's all about how do you position yourself for success. And that's always been the hardest one for me on a lot of levels because I have a lot of celebrity friends, but I would never ask them for favors. I have a lot of people that I know that are in really high positions, but I might be too shy. I don't have the permission, right? So how do you position yourself after you've found out what you want in your life and given yourself the permission to go for it? How do you get positioned to have success? And those are the people who find success. They know who they are. They know what they want. They don't let anyone get in their way. And then they set themselves up for success by being in the very spot where they can succeed. A great example of that is Steven Spielberg. An absolutely unknown kid decides he wants to be a director and just hangs out on the Universal lot, completely uninvited, not supposed to be there, but he hangs out so much that they finally let him make, <laughs> make copies or, you know, go get my coffee or whatever. He's sure. there. Yeah. And the next thing Might you know, well put him to use. So I'm curious when you think about those three concepts, right? You got to have the purpose, you got to have the permission and position yourself. Mm -hmm. You've said that for you, it's the position that's been the, the biggest struggle is that maybe I didn't make that clear? I've been positioned, but I didn't reverse the flow. In other words, I didn't complete the permission part. So, mm. like, I, I've been positioned to be successful before, right? I was ready to go work in Florida and be the number one or sure. number two news anchor. I didn't give myself the permission to do it, right? So, I missed a step in the permission part when I got to the positioning. Interesting. Right? Do, do you find that? that, that clearer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm curious, do you find that? There's consistency amongst others that you've either interviewed or that you've helped as a coach where they seem to struggle in any one part of those or any one of the P's or I, I see how they're all sort of, they blend together and it's yeah. almost like a, they all sort of, sort of cycle through each other in mm -hmm. a way. And, and just as, just as you just described that, that's, that's the indication that I, or the realization that I had, but I'm curious what you've seen as either some common challenges or some consistencies in terms of where people maybe have the most difficulty in any one of those areas. I would say it's the permission part, which is why the book is called Stop Waiting for Permission, not Stop Waiting for Position. Yeah. Right. It's, it, you know, it's allowing yourself to believe that you, you can succeed. And the thing I found out while doing the book and doing my interviews was it's not that people are afraid of success. It's that they don't have a relationship with it. They have a relationship with failure, with disappointment. That's normal. That makes sense, right? I tried, I failed. I tried, I failed. I tried, I failed. That's comfortable. We know what that is. If we don't have a relationship with success, that might be as frightening or unclear. Or what if we get it and we screw it up, right? So it's in the permission phase that I think most people struggle. Like, I, no holds barred, right? Steven Spielberg didn't need permission. Uh, we were talking about the guy who didn't have a plan B, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Please. Permission? Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. right he right. was so gung ho about himself that he's like, he said, he said to his friend, I'm going to go to America and I'm going to marry a Kennedy and be a millionaire. And he did. He got himself positioned with the Kennedys so and he married Maria Shriver. Did you ever see that coming? No, no one did, right? But he positioned himself and it was all, he allowed himself to do that. So it's always the permission part, I think, that's the toughest. Well, I think it's, it's so fascinating because you think about like there's several things that sort of, popcorn in my brain as you were talking. One is belief in oneself is so vastly important. And part of that is actually seeing yourself in whatever position or situation that you 
set up to be. I think all too often we limit ourselves. We don't, as you said, give ourselves permission or we don't, for whatever reason, feel that we're worthy of whatever goal or aspiration that we might have. We, we can't actually see ourselves in that place. And I think that's, it's frankly, it's problematic because if we can't see ourselves, if like Arnold couldn't see himself marrying a Kennedy, or if he couldn't see himself becoming a millionaire, chances of it happening are minimized to practically nothing. It it just completely removes it from it being a possibility. And we're effectively programming our brain. If we can visualize, if we can think, and if we can ultimately give ourselves permission, we can very likely achieve the things that we set up to achieve, or at least a lot more likely than if it were the other end of the spectrum. I never thought I would say this, but in I'm 53 now and I have become 100%. I'm going to do a Steve joke. You never thought you'd be 53. I I never thought I'd be 53. (laughs) It's only for a year. Doesn't that suck? Um, I thought I'd go from 52 to 54. (laughs) It's like missing the 13th floor in a building. (laughs) I never thought I'd say this with such conviction, but it's true. I now firmly believe that if you do set your mind to something, you'll achieve it, period. There's nothing that can stop you except you. You're the only thing. And I wish I knew that. Yeah. 30 years ago. Well, we're, we're our own worst enemies. And as cliche as that may be, right, what you just said, it's true for a reason. It's true for a reason. Henry Ford said, whether you think, think you, you can, can or you cannot, you're, you're right. right. Yeah. And that's it's powerful. He's, yeah. He's, and he's living, well, he's not living, but he is proof of that. <laughs> he's uh, undead proof. <laughs> it is almost Halloween. Exactly. So curious, you know, going back just briefly before we sort of fast forward into the more current days, when you look back at your entertainment career, and that's everything from reporting on the news to being a television host to documentaries, everything that you've done, what are you most proud of? And you can give a few because, you know, we've only scratched the surface of what you've done. And for anyone interested, and I, you know, when you were, when you and I were working together, you, you never loved me doing this, but I always got a huge kick out of looking at your demo reel uh-huh. and you have multiple demo reels for, you know, yeah, whether it's a TV right. host or what have you, but it's just like, wow, look at all those things you've done. It's amazing, man. Like I get chills thinking about it because it's, I don't think you, and I'm telling you this as your friend, I don't think you appreciate as much as I appreciate yeah, what you've done. Not. Like I, I think it's incredible. I really do. You've done so many things. So what, what are you most proud of? Well, it might surprise you because we've talked about, look, I, I've traveled around, not the world, but the country. I've done crazy things. I've been set on fire twice. I flew in a V-22 Osprey at 300 miles an hour, 15 feet off the <laughs> This is Nevada. what I'm talking I mean, about, man. I, I've done phenomenal, like amazing stuff for television shows and stuff like that. But the two things- As you do. Yeah, as, you, as, you, as one does. Yeah. The two things I'm most proud of are when I was 25, I wrote a two-act play about something that happened to my father when he was in college, and I premiered it in a Connecticut theater to small crowds and a little bit of reviews. But it was the first thing I ever wrote that I produced and had people come to. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'll never be more proud than that opening night when I watched my cast that I directed play out words that I wrote. Yeah. And it, it still gives me, gives me the chills when I think about sure. it. Sure. Because I'm very proud of that play that I wrote. And it's been since done again in Connecticut. Guy said, hey, I like that 10 years ago. Can I do it? And I said, yeah, of course, do it. Interesting. It was cool. called Beyond Suspicion. It's a, it's a, it's a true story which again, it's probably another podcast. The other thing I'm really proud of is I made the Dalai Lama laugh. 
<laughs> well, I again, I don't know how many people could say that, but tell us the story. Uh, again, I had a lot of opportunity with Maria Shriver and the California Women's Conference, and I covered it every year for Sirius. I think it was three or four years in a row. And one year, the Dalai Lama was there, and I got to interview him for Sirius. And I sat down, and he said, really? You interviewed the Dalai Lama? I mean- what? Just well, here, like, come here, on, man. If you want to talk regrets, I didn't get a flipping picture of it, which oh. I still can't believe. But how do we know be it's that true? As, yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> you can call Maria Schreiber. I sat there with him. He's a charming fellow anyway. He probably would have laughed at anything I said, but I, I made some smarmy, very safe, but funny thing, something about the reporters that were there. And he just held his stomach and he laughed oh. in a real laugh. Yeah. I'd love that picture. Sure. Like me just staring at him while he's laughing. Uh, but it just, it's its something that I'm just really proud of. And it's its not just being proud of. It's a warm moment that I loved. Yeah. And he he is a phenomenal man. You spend 10 minutes with a guy you feel yeah. new. And, and I'm just, that's something I'll always remember. That's special, man. Well, yeah. I love both of those stories. And I, I am going to ask, you know, because I'm just hungry for it. Yeah. And I also think that you're a humble guy. You never brag about the things that you've done. I always try to- You do. (laughs) I I love this, man. And I love this. So just curious, what else, just for the audience who may be curious, who isn't going to, they're not going to go, you know, stalk you like I did looking at all your demo reels. What are some other highlights? We'll just, they don't have to necessarily be the most proud moments, but what are some of the- Are you trying to get the American Idol story out of me? Is that what you're trying to do? So here's everything I know about that. I auditioned twice for the show. It was a year before it came out. I had no idea what it was. I was in the middle of auditioning for a ton of shows. I didn't care. It was rather an unremarkable audition, both of them. I think the second one was for some producer. I'm not sure. It's a long time ago. We did it in a theater in Hollywood. It was a big theater. I'm talking to this empty, you know, thing. Mm -hmm. And then nothing happened and I never heard anything. And then a year later, the show premiered and I called my manager at the time and I said, hey, that show, American Idol. And she's like, oh yeah, you were like, Number five, I think. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, oh yeah, they were considering you. You were like one of five or six people. And I'm just like, what? (laughs) I'm like, you didn't fight for me? (laughs) Because I didn't care at the time, but hearing it later, I was just, I was blown away. Blown away. So that's that's something that I know. mean yeah look the no no question that would be a, a game changer clearly the show was a juggernaut in a but I will tell you this I, I don't think I would have been right for the show I'm I'm, I'm almost well I don't, I don't want to say I'm glad I didn't get it because it, it catapulted but I mean to a things happen sphere. like but Ryan Seacrest is perfect for that show like that's his show he's that guy yeah, yeah. He, he did a great job and you would also do an amazing Just job a different job and so you shared something that you didn't do yeah. I want to know what you did do because like there's so many things and we did talk briefly about, um, about the, cause I've all off. I will admit that I've multiple times asked you about the American idol thing and I yeah. brought it up, but you know, your, your career, I mean, one through line that I've seen, especially in the entertainment is you're intrigued by the sciences. And yeah. one of the things that probably most people don't know is you're a huge NASA buff. I mean, huge, huge, huge. You love space. You love exploration. You love the unknown. And I I love that too. You have spent many hours and done tons of interviews in that space. So I'm curious, what's some of the work that you've done in that regard? Let me just say one bit of a correction. I'm actually a NASA historian. That's my hobby. I I don't have a lot of hobbies because my life kind of feels like a bunch of hobbies, but I've been a NASA historian for decades. And what I do is I collect 
artifacts that have been flown in space. Hmm. And so if it's been flown in space, it's very, very, very valuable, right? And there's, I got a lot of stuff that hasn't been flown in space, but uh, I'm very proud of my flown collection. So what, well, give me, give me your, your most prized piece. Okay, there's a flag. It's about three inches by two inches. They and can't it, see you, you so. Can, oh, sorry, I'm, like, I'm holding up like, <laughs> my fingers. But you did say three inches. I did say three inches. inches by two inches. That was flown on Columbia, which was the very first shuttle orbiter to fly post-Apollo. And the flag commemorated, at that time, the 25th anniversary of Apollo 11. That was flown in space on Columbia. Now, Apollo 11 doesn't exist anymore, and Columbia was destroyed on reentry in 2003. And so that flag, to me, is very significant and very special. I have it framed, and I've got a piece of metal from Apollo 11 like it's probably one grain of metal from apollo but it's in a gold medallion that's part of it as well and i've got several things that i had signed myself i met i've met five moonwalkers <laughs> again going <laughs> back to my first point which i didn't articulate <laughs> as well as i probably could have how Sorry. many people can say that amazing man i met the first four and the last mm-hmm. to stand on the moon and, and how many have there been 12 because you've met five out of the 12. Out of the more. 12. And okay. a lot of them are dead now. Well, you're not going to hit 100% then. That's right. Yeah. Jim Irwin. <laughs> I'll never meet Jim Irwin. I almost met Dave Scott. I know you guys don't know who that is. But I met uh, Neil and Buzz, the first Somebody two is guys. now Googling. Who I know. <laughs> Jim Irwin. Apollo 16. So, um, sorry, 15. I met Neil and Buzz, the first two. And then the second two, Alan Bean and Pete Conrad. And then I met the last one, uh, Gene Cernan just a few years ago in Las Vegas, just before he died. And I got Buzz's autograph and I got Neil's autograph and I got, and they signed something very rare. Right. So all of that, but I kind of forgot what the question is. I, I could go, I could talk no, about my, this all my day. question. Is, well, it's, it's the science. So no, yeah, to, then tying science. back to kind of some of the hosting that you've done and some mm-hmm. of the shows that you've been a part of wondering what, what are some of those? I'm still trying to get the highlights really is what I'm trying I to gotcha. do. The first show that Give I Give me get, your credits from start to finish. You everything you've done. The first television show that I got that I auditioned for was called The Human Edge. And if you have Los Angeles listeners, if you know on CBS too, Sharon Tay, who does the morning show, was my co-host. And we talked all about cutting edge science and technology. And we stood in front of this giant green screen and they animated it. And it was all teleprompter, which I love. I love reading teleprompter. And it was all about space and science. And and we, you know, the show, this was back in 2006. And it predicted a lot of stuff that are happening today, like the double-decker plane and mm. wearable internet con- clothes. Like you, you can have integrated computers into your clothing and stuff like that and, and all of that. So yeah, some of the shows I did were science. I did a show called Cool Stuff and How It Works which is diving into all how these really neat things work, including fingerprint identifiers and eye scan things. One thing I remember, I did a ton of stuff, but one thing I did was there's a gel and it was developed in a lab in Arizona. And if you coat anything with it, you cannot stab through it with anything. So for instance, they took a piece of cloth, just cloth, like what you're wearing, your shirt. They coated it in the gel and put it on a table and they tried to stab a knife through it and the knife couldn't go through the gel blocks the impact, but it's just gel. If you touch it, it's just goo. Mm. And they said, well, we want to first coat doctor's gloves with them. So people in prisons won't get stabbed with stuff. Doctors won't get poked with things. But the other applications could eventually be something that replaces Kevlar. If they make it the right way, the bullets can be stopped. And I don't know, that kind of stuff just makes me crazy. I love it. And Cool Stuff was a great show. And one of my most proudest moments of Cool Stuff was not what we did, 
but that a friend of mine called me and said, I was flying to Singapore and I saw your show mm-hmm. on the plane. Which I thought, oh, that's cool. Yeah, man. Well, I can understand why being a part of these shows was meaningful for you, especially in light of the fact that you're genuinely curious. You you love this stuff. I'm curious what you, you know, I know this is a tough question to ask for somebody that doesn't like to brag, but I'm curious, what do you attribute your success in that space, you know, in entertainment and hosting? Why is it that you got these roles and what, what was your secret sauce, would you say? Well, I, I luck because I auditioned for thousands of shows and got four. So it's numbers, it's math, and the rest of it is I was the right fit for the job. Anyone who's ever auditioned for anything knows, let me change that. Anyone who's ever held an audition, you've interviewed hundreds of people mm-hmm. for jobs. Mm-hmm. It's almost the same thing. Well, And, and for my film, too. For your, <laughs> that's right, for, yeah. for rolling, right? You understand. So you know when you know someone walks in. You know what the project is. The person is going to tell you when they walk in the door. Auditions are just... Who's it going to be? Not, I like this person, they'll fit, maybe that works. Usually the person that walks in tells you. So I was lucky enough to walk in on the Cool Stuff audition and they're like, okay, you're the guy. And so, listen, even with Ryan, someone like Ryan Seacrest, he was, a, he was in Florida doing radio. He came out to LA. I never want to discount something that may not be a popular theme. And that is, sometimes people just get lucky. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think there's something to that. And your other point about it being a numbers game and then going back to like, hey, if you want something bad enough, you're going to put yourself out there and you're going to have this tenacity and this persistence and this ability to... Persistence doesn't always mean you're going after the same thing over and over again. Yeah. It could be that you put yourself in enough situations to where you are the right person. And that goes back to the 3P argument, which is I knew what my purpose was at the time. I wanted to be on television. I really enjoyed being a host. I gave myself permission to go out, get headshots and you know, be a struggling host and audition and audition and then position myself to be successful. So luck is the end part of it. Yeah. The rest is all the sweat equity that you put into it in the beginning. I wasn't fishing for this, but the part of the reason I asked mm. that question prior to what I'm about to share is that I can tell you for me, and I did interview you, and it wasn't an audition, but you you instantly won me over. And part of that reason is what I mentioned earlier is your your sense of humor and your wit. Curious, you know, when you think about flexing that muscle, you already cited that a lot of that came from your early childhood. And curious if there's anything else that stands out about how you've managed to build upon something that has become a gift because it really is your ability to make people laugh is it's second nature to you and wondering if it, if it's something that again you've built as a kid but you've also developed as an adult wonder if you could speak to your sense of humor and how it's evolved over time it's a great question i've never considered that so i guess i'm free forming here but it does occur to me that you know, the reasons no longer exist for me being funny because they were escapism, but the talent got to stay, right? The best parts. Got, right. You got, got to keep to the goodness. Yeah. I kept the good stuff. The reasons are gone now. I will admit, I, I do love my sense of humor and I love, it's, it's almost like I've disconnected from, from earth when I'm in the moment. We, we were doing our, our role plays at Varengo. Oh my God. So so, so funny. So what happens is <laughs> you, we have... I get to steer it now. You made me laugh <laughs> every time. Well, we had a bunch of sales trainees and, and we had to do role plays and I'd play the customer. And it's I, I will tell you, it's moments like that 
where I don't feel of this earth. I feel different. I feel disconnected from everything around me. And I am, I am pure in every sense. And I, that may sound weird. And that's, it sounds weird mm. for me saying it right now. I, I've never said this before, but it's almost like I, I'm underwater. And in those moments, I can come up and breathe. And that's who that's I am. That's so interesting. It, and, I, and maybe that pain needed to exist to reveal that truth in me because it is who I am. And I love it. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think that's healthy to have the self-awareness to know that you have a gift and that you also appreciate the gift. You, you, you don't need to apologize for something that is a great quality, a great trait. How it came about it almost is irrelevant. It's, it's part of the right. story. But I think it's fascinating what you just shared because it actually doesn't surprise me in a weird way because it, it's almost... It's a superhuman power, really, and in some sense. I want to interrupt you just for go, one go second. Go for it, man. I'm going to say something. I hope it doesn't offend you or upset you that I'm saying this, but you once called me an idiot savant. Sometimes I say the darn things. But sense. you're not wrong. And when, even when you said it, you're right, because... I, you know, I struggled at first to understand what solar was. You know, I didn't know what it was. And you was didn't to... report me to HR. Let me just... no, I know, I can't believe it. No, but I, I remember you saying that. And I remember thinking, yeah, he's right because <laughs> because I would be like, wait, what's a what's a panel? What's a this? But then I turn it all off and then and do the role play, and somehow I knew what I was doing, and it was like I it was like I was two different people. And you said that you're like. You've got this thing. You can't figure this out, and yet you can do this. And and you were right. Interesting. Well, I know I, solar now, but back then I didn't yeah, know it at all. I certainly don't uh, <laughs> don't know what to say. But uh, <laughs> what, what I will say is, I can understand how you have this feeling of your almost out of body experience. Because how else do you explain just your quickness? Because it do, it's not normal how fast you. Clearly, there's other people that are witty, and they're they're famous comedians and people that have this wit and it's always, it's always awe inspiring. It's mm -hmm. awe. It, it, it's awesome. It creates this experience that, that one's not used to because most people, especially me, need to think a little bit more to yeah. say something that is so humorous, but you've applied that gift into not only your career in entertainment, but also now into your career in learning and development and training. Yeah. You're a, a DISC certified trainer. So you did your NLP days, you did your DISC days. Yeah. You've spent a lot of time building a knowledge set and a knowledge base to say, okay, yeah, you have this natural gift, which is your humor, but you're also layering in some really, really concrete knowledge that is, that's been developed by other people. And so you infuse both of those and you're a force as a result. And so today you're director of training for a company. You and I have worked together in the training capacity at Tesla, at Varengo and at Solar City briefly. So curious, when did you fall in love with training? And what do you see is the reason why you have found that to be such a, a good fit for you and your personality and your skills. I'm going to put it back on you because I think it's because of you, to be honest. I, I, I really mean that. I think I've always been a coach. I've always been someone who's empathetic and cares about people and wants to change and help people. But it wasn't until I saw you deliver our first sales training seminar 
where something clicked in me. It was probably, if, if that guy can do it, I, I definitely well, can here's do what, it. Well, here, here, here's a Billy Salibi training seminar. You walk in and there's music just blasting. And it's not loud, obnoxious music. It's fantastic music. It's the kind of music that makes you come up with a really great memory. And there's visual aids all around. And he's shaking your hand and he's smiling. And it's a family party atmosphere, even though you're about to sit down and really learn a lot of stuff and really dig in, the moment you walk in, you realize you're welcomed. That it's not just, oh, sit down anywhere. We'll get started in a minute. It's like, no, I've been waiting for you and I've prepared. And I wanted this to be a special moment for you, the trainee. And I remember seeing you get started with that and work and and just thinking, wow, that's amazing. I've stolen a lot of your great ideas. In fact, I'm going to be delivering a training and it's going to be to 60 people. And the first thing I'm going to do when they sit down is hand out three cards, three playing cards. Because I remember we were doing a training for Solar City in Vegas. And in order to ensure everybody came back from the break on time, they got an ex- they got another card. It's like, it's a- It was in Vegas, yeah, on-time poker. On-time yeah. poker. That's exactly right. I'm stealing that. I'm using that in December. And so it really is you. Your, your natural love of people and enthusiasm for doing what you do was almost the last piece of the puzzle for me. And I say that because I spent this whole interview talking, you and I both talking about how I've just been this pebble skipping along the top of a pond. But I feel like I've gotten to a point in my life where I may actually be settling into something that I might do for the rest of my life. And that is training and developing employees to have a positive work environment, whether it is from a human resources standpoint or from a sales training standpoint or California sexual harassment training or whatever training I have to do. I deal with construction workers, casino workers, people who work at Fuji Foods assembling sushi. Like I have to have all these different disciplines, but my trainings are always the same. They're welcomed with music Mm. and smiles and bright lights and a lot of fun and games. And I throw in a lot of humor. And as a result, I'm I'm getting some good feedback and and I think I'm making a difference and and I really do credit you. I never would have gotten there without you. Oh, uh, well, thank you, man. I mean, I super humbled to hear that. I, you've been super complimentary over the years and you've you've often have said what you said earlier, which is the impact that I that I had. And but but we haven't talked I, I guess as detailed about the the training side of things. Yeah. And all I can say is one super glad to hear that it had that impact. And two, I think the reason it resonated with you is you are the type of person that that would fit and connect with you. And therefore it makes sense that you would want to then pass that on to others. I believe life is so finite that why not have a good time while we're learning? Let's embrace it. Let's make it a party. Let's make it fun. Let's make it memorable. Let's make it something that they walk away and they literally say, wow, I have never attended anything that incredible, especially a training. So Um, because it's literally the last thing they want to do. Yeah, totally. And I, and I say that I, I I was I'm I'm it's the end of the year and I'm teaching a lot of sexual harassment courses and I say to everyone at the beginning I'm going to tell you what my dentist told me last week when I got my root canal. I'm sorry you have to be here, which is a great <laughs> way to start. But no one wants to go to training, so yeah, put it on its end and yeah, really make it sure. something that they're really grateful for. Let's transition. Would love to know what advice you would have for somebody that is just starting out their career and they're just looking for some wisdom and some nuggets that you've acquired through your clearly unique and fascinating journey of life. What advice would you have for somebody that's just getting started in their career? It's the probably uh, the kind of advice that's not going to land with someone who's starting out, but I'm going to say it anyway. And, and that is, don't listen to anybody. I have come to realize that no one 
knows what they're doing in this world. We're all just winging it. Everybody's just winging it. And the guy that looks you in the eye and says, I got it all figured out is the guy who probably has the least figured out. And people make, <laughs> totally, right? people make careers out of acting like they know what they're doing and some get lucky and some get successful and that's great. But I, behind every dollar that somebody makes was a guess and maybe they got it right and maybe they didn't. And so what I, the advice I give to everybody is there's only one thing you need to listen to and that's the voice that you don't listen to because the fear takes over or the excuses take over or the father or mother's voice takes over. We're all given through our experiences a gift of intuition and instinct and we pave over it with cement because we have life experiences that hurt us and deny us opportunities and scar us or voices in our head that stop us. There's always that first gut feeling. And I liken it to being on Jeopardy. Mm. They say, if you're on Jeopardy, ring in. It doesn't matter if you don't know the answer because the first thing that comes up in your brain is probably the right one. And people will say they've been on Jeopardy and they're like, I, I, you, a thousand times I bet in your life, you said, oh, I thought of that first, but then I changed my mind. It's always the first thing. So what I say to everyone who asks me is, listen to and follow your gut. Don't listen to anybody else. And that doesn't always work. Well, it takes training. The key distinction that I'm hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, well, one, clearly don't listen to other people. Like Everyone's figuring it out. Let's set that aside. What I want to talk about is how we listen to ourselves. And I think the distinction you're making is our gut, that first, our instinctual part of our brain or our thing that comes out first is what we should be listening to. But what we end up listening to is the doubtful part of our brain or the part of our brain that is telling us why we can't do something or why we shouldn't do something. Or it's the part that happens after that gut. Am, am I, I'm kind of ex, extrapolating yeah. what you said into. Yeah. And this is, if, if this is, I talk about this in the last chapter of my book and I even cite an example. A lot of people seem to think that my gut tells me this. I'm telling you what happens is the first instinctual thing happens and it's paved over so quickly with your second thought. You might not even know you had the first thought. Like you said to yourself, people walk around and they're asleep, right? We're all just kind of making it through life, right? Those are the people that don't listen to that voice. It's been paved over. And I think we, we mistake our second thought as being our first thought. Mm. Oh, I'm not going to do that. It's too scary. I'll get hurt. That's right. I don't know. Because it's and, paved over so quickly. I, I, so quickly, you don't know it. <clears throat> and now I don't, mean, dry. I don't mean to say if someone says, hey, don't walk off there. That's a cliff. You don't listen. I mean, you know, I mean, take advice, but, but you don't need advice. You know what's right for you. Mm. You know, that's part of the purpose. That's part of the permission. And then it's all about positioning yourself. But I dare say most of us don't know what that first gut sting instinct is, but we all know when we say to ourselves, I should have just listened to my dad. Yeah. 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 We, we've all had that, that course <laughs> afterthought experience where imagine we, never having that feeling. Yeah. That's limited. I know that's, that's so true. So challenges are an interesting thing in life. We all have them. Some people call them failures. Some people call them obstacles. Curious what challenge or failure in your life stands out as probably the one that's most significant. And what did you learn as a result of that challenge being present? I mean, I have to say I, I'm still suffering the effects of my divorce, which was 2013. 
today I went through something that was quite difficult as a result of my divorce, and it's still going on. I just married the absolute wrong person for me for some god-awful reason, and it's just has been a torture for me ever since. I have two children with this person. Uh, the co-parenting isn't going well. Um, it's very difficult to deal with her. The divorce itself was nasty. You were there for most, you know, right in the beginning, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and having children's been wonderful, and I love them, but the marriage itself was just a humongous mistake. And the challenge has been not to pave over the opportunities, but to learn from them. So when I was going through my divorce, I read something that changed my life, which was when you lose, don't lose the lesson. And so what I've decided to do during painful times like this, this divorce, is to ask what is out there for me to learn. And I've learned a tremendous amount. I'm not even close to the same person I was in 2013 because I've just changed so much as a result of everything that I've learned, all the mistakes I've made, everything. You're never going to grow and be happy if you don't admit that you've made mistakes and learn from them. That's It's impossible to grow if you think everything you do is right and everyone else is crazy. Um, that's no way to live. Yeah, I know. I believe me. I, I, as you said, I have been there along the, the ride, not, not obviously in the same anywhere near the atmosphere of how it's been for you, but you and I are close enough to where you've shared how difficult it's been. And so I'm not surprised that is your answer to the question. As we peel back the onion and look even deeper, there's so many facets to this. On one hand, she is the mother to your children. So your children, if you didn't kind of make that quote unquote mistake, they don't exist, right? So clearly you love your kids with your life. I know that. I know how important they are to you. So you never, ever, ever, ever want to do anything to compromise the joy that you get from having these two wonderful daughters who are amazing and who I know also. Are you able to put yourself in a position to, because it's so hard, right? Like to, you know, I hate to say get over it, but you've had to deal with something on it today. How are you coping in light of the fact that it has been, you of all people, because I, I know you so well, you've had the most difficult divorce of any human being that I know. That's true. That I know. That's true. Full stop, right? And so that being the case... How do you cope in light of the fact that it has been so gut-wrenchingly painful? Well, I think this is part of the growth question. And, and what has this challenge done for me? What have I gotten out of it? What's the greatest challenge? What did I get out of it? What I got out of this challenge was you knew me years ago in 2013. And if anything happened while I was going through my divorce, I just fell apart. I was a puddle. I had to leave work one day. I mean, I was a mess. Today, I had a challenge. And I just sat there and said, nope, that's not true. No, that didn't happen. Let's do this. I'm a completely different person in, in as much as how I react to the situation. And this is the greatest breakthrough and insight that I've had through this time is, is I don't have to react to anything. I can sit there and allow the other person to be whoever she needs to be without me going, oh my God, this is so terrible. How could you say that? I've suddenly decided over the years, okay, you're never going to change. This is who you are. I don't like it. I don't like who you are. I don't like your choices, but no amount of shame, no amount of begging, no amount of getting other people involved is ever going to change this person. And once I came to that realization, I stopped reacting to everything she did. So yeah, I had a difficult phone call today between my ex and a therapist and, and it was, it was a tough pill to swallow, but I'll tell you, I, I hung up and I go, no, oh, that sucked. Anyway, and, and I went on and, and 
came here and hung out with you. If it were five years ago, I'd be like, oh my God, I can't do this interview. She's driving me crazy. You know, I would have been a mess. And so that's what's changed is I've stopped reacting. And somehow that has changed my life in a lot of ways. And it's it's helped me in a lot of ways. And, and I'll tell your listeners this, uh, I'm remarried now. And I also have two stepdaughters. So I've got four daughters altogether and a wife who is phenomenal. And the reason I'm with her is solely because I didn't make the same mistakes because I learned from them. I admitted what I did wrong. I found out what my part was in it. I didn't say I'm going to do the opposite of my, what my ex was. I'm just going to change the person that I am and attract that person. And I found that person. I'm very happily married and I can deal with life and with this marriage and with everything that's going on simply because I've just learned to not freak out when things happen. Well, what I hear when you say that is action, reaction, action, reaction. So what, and this is good advice for anyone in any relationship. I could tell you for me personally, I had a, a very similar sort of realization that just reacting is usually, and especially if the reaction is like almost instant, it right. usually doesn't end well because you're often overreacting and or it becomes you react, then they react, then you react, then they react. And it's this cycle that continues to digress in a very negative way. And the original point isn't even addressed. Exactly. And it may not even be that big of a deal, the original thing, or it may be, but you've moved so far away from that because you've elevated. And so sometimes the other message that I hear is is silence can also help. It's fantastic. And I want to, I, something just popped up in my my mind. I realized why I was so reactive because the same mechanism that sprung load me to react to every piece of stimuli I got from my ex is the same mechanism that spring loads the jokes. It's the same instantaneous reaction to something. You say I can respond to something very quickly with humor and summon that joke instantly. Yeah. That's the same mechanism that responded to the, the st- uh, right. right? Same thing. So I've kept the humor and I've calmed down the other part. And like I said, today the phone call could have gone horribly, but I was just like, no, that's not what happened. Let's stick back to, let's get back to the point. Let's, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it doesn't do you any favors to sort of unearth this natural talent that you have. If it, if, if it's <laughs> for evil for, yeah, if it's going to cause friction and it's going to make, even if they did the worst thing ever, mm-hmm. you going and making it worse as a result of, yeah, I mean, look, fighting back it, in a way. It's hard to take the high road, but the benefits are fantastic yeah. because there's a saying, you know, don't wrestle with a pig. You're both going to get muddy, but only one of you will like it. <laughs> and and that's just something that, that I'm now adhering to. Yeah, no, it makes a ton of sense. Okay, so let's talk about role models because you've already, you know, talked about uh, your grandfather mm-hmm. and, and, and just some of the incredible work that he did. He was clearly ahead of his time making doing things well before it was cool to do those things and before it was common to do those things. So I would imagine he's somebody that you've looked at in, in that light. But I'm wondering who, who are either him or others that have been a role model and have provided an example that you strive to follow? It's interesting. It might not be people you would think of. It's hard to say because I really do put Cecil Young, my grandfather, up there as someone that I... I wish I were. I wish I was. I wish I was as incredible as he was. But I, I think of it more in terms of people that have influenced me. So, 
it's weird esoteric people like Spalding Gray, the monologist who committed suicide five years ago after a devastating car accident, but who spun amazing tales of his own personal story throughout his life. He suffered with depression, and the only way he cured himself was by talking to audiences full of people and just getting it out and monologuing. I just found him to be so influential on my life just in terms of how he communicated, how he spoke to people. David Byrne, the leader of the Talking Heads in the 70s and eventually became someone who's such an esoteric artist and worked with all kinds of different people. Someone who just sees the world slightly at a different angle mm. uh, that I find to be fascinating. Uh, Wayne Dyer's books, I loved reading when I was younger. There was a guy named Leo Buscalia in the 70s and 80s who would, called himself the hug doctor. And he just walked around hugging everybody, but in a good PC way, I have to think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think if I stitch all those people together, and Orson Welles is another one who who was an outsider and a genius and never kind of played by the rules and paid for it a lot because he was ousted from Hollywood and all of that. If you put all those people together in the soup, I would have to say that the main thing about all of them is they just didn't fit in the middle lane. They were always just kind of outside the line a little bit and did something that still affected the world and gave it back to them. Not here's a safe route, but here's something different. And I wanted you to see it because there's other options. And I saw that. I saw that the that there was other lanes to drive in. And that always affected me and, and influenced me. That's so cool, man. And it really, I think it tells a lot about you and how you've led your life. And I can definitely see the parallel and consistency with, you haven't done that either. You haven't taken the the safe road or the normal road. You've stepped out of your comfort zone. And we've highlighted a lot of that on this show. When you think about how you lead your life today and some of the things that you've developed in terms of habits or rituals, or it could be anything, how you manage your schedule. It could be how you manage your being, right? Because we're all unique individuals and we all find things that are going to be helpful for us as a unique human to set ourselves up for success. What are some of those rituals or habits that you've developed or found to be helpful? From a physical standpoint, I meditate not every day, but often. I make my bed every single morning. That's something that I just do. It's just something that anchors me somehow to a ritual that when I come home at night, my bed is made. And it's a nice, you know, and it's something about that. And, and I, my father taught me that's one of the few things that I can credit my father as having a positive influence on me. But he was a Marine and he's like, make your bed every day. And it's still part of my daily routine. I find that rituals in terms of personal growth help me. So eating a shit burger when I'm wrong, saying, you know what, that's me. I did that. I was wrong. Um, even if it's not popular or even if it makes you seem weak. I teach that to my children. I'm not, you know, I make mistakes with my kids and I sit them down and I go, that was on me. I'm sorry. Um, I find those are the things that ritualistically keep me sane. Being honest, straightforward, admitting when I'm wrong, put my hands up and going, yep, I'm the dummy. I, yeah, I'm, a, I'm the idiot savant. Yeah, you got it, right? Just being honest about what I am and what I'm not. Those are the rituals that I have to keep practicing. Because I will tell you this, I think I could have gone in a different direction. I could have been a real jerk in life. I could have been like, no, you're the idiot. And I could have been a bulldozer. And I could have used my white privilege Connecticut upbringing to be anything I wanted, including a corporate raider or anything else I wanted to be. And I think 
I've stayed, I've steered away from those ways of being because I just knew it wasn't what I wanted, how I wanted to die, you know, having all the toys, but no one loved me, you know what I mean? Or I had no connection. And so my rituals are keeping connected with people and, and being honest. Yeah, man. And isn't it interesting how you recognize not only who you are, but who you could have been and relative to a variety of factors that transpired at an early age and your upbringing and all these different data points and, and inputs that do ultimately create who you are. The, the fascinating thing though, is that because there are so many different inputs, who you ultimately become can vary quite widely. And you, you could have been the, you know, what you were just describing, yeah. but instead you become the person that you are. One last question before we dive into the lightning round. Mm -hmm. And that question is, we've already talked about that you've done some amazing things, right? You've reported on breaking news. You've reported on fires and floods and you've done car chases. You've been a TV host. You've met with celebrities. You've done so many amazing things. What is the craziest or most interesting thing you've ever reported on? Okay. So I'll tell you the most terrifying. How about that? That's the first thing that came to mind. Okay. Years ago, back in the late 90s, I was working for CBS and I was a helicopter reporter for them. We were flying in a helicopter that was not very strong. It was, a, a, I, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It escapes me, but I'll get there. But there was fires up in Wrightwood Canyon, which is out near the 210 freeway, you know, probably 50 miles east of here. And I was at that time reporting from 2 to 9 p.m. And so I was flying at night. And we had to go fly and report on those fires. And it's 11,000 feet up in Wrightwood. And we're flying in this helicopter that can barely get to 11,000 feet anyway. But by the time we get there, the pilot informs me that helicopters need cool air to stay aloft. That if they're over warm air, that it doesn't, it's not really good for lift, which is strange because you would think warm air would lift them. <laughs> so we get there and he's like, I don't know, man, I don't know if we should be here. And my news director is saying, you got to report on this. And the time I was both the reporter and the camera operator. So I've got the camera thing on my lap and I'm watching the, the feed and it's dark, it's nighttime and I'm live on the air talking and the helicopter is going gong, 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 and it just keeps dropping a little bit and dropping a little bit. And we're over 11,200 feet in the air over jagged mountain cliffs with fire underneath us. And I'm looking around and there's white ash everywhere. It looks like it's snowing upside down. And there's fire below me. I'm talking about the fires. And, and I'm thinking at any minute, we're either going to crash into one of these jagged mountain peaks or just drop like a stone right into there. And that's the end of it. And it was probably the, the, the most frightening 30 minutes of my life. Ugh. And I just, I knew I was going to die. And I'm, and I'm talking live on the air, like I'm talking to you now saying, well, the fire seems to be spreading. You know, crews are dropping water during the day when it's light out. And now we've got folks, they're trying to, they're trying to contain this North. And, and I'm like, I'm going to die. <laughs> so, you know, I love my mom and tell everyone, you know, and that, that stands out to me as probably the craziest, stupidest thing I've ever done. Even the pilot said we shouldn't have done that. Yeah. Oh God. Well, helicopters are scary in general. They're flying rocks. It's, but they're, it's insane. They're, yeah, they are freaky. Fun, but freaky. Speaking of fun, but freaky, let's get into the lightning round. Okay. This is a series of quick hitting questions where I'm going to put you in an emotional state or a situation and ask you, what is that first gut reaction? It's talking about Here gut comes the instincts, right? Yeah. What is the gut reaction? What's your gut response? And the first question is, what excites you? Uh, to be honest, connection. I got to be honest. Either meeting with an old friend that I'd love dearly like you 
or meeting a new friend that I know I'm going to be friends with forever. I am a connected soul seeking person. I love connecting with people. That's what excites me. So I'm not like a party guy. I don't go to parties, but I love one-on-ones. I Mm -hmm. love interacting, debating, sharing ideas, doing this. This is what excites me. I love that. I could do it forever. Speaking of debate, is it true or not true that you were the captain of your debate team? In college at Maryland. (laughs) Great fun fact. One semester. One semester is what I got. Wow. Very cool though. Uh, How did you know that? I, I have my sources, man. I, wow. I, I do some research. Interesting. Yeah, I that was re- fun. <laughs> but I will tell you back then, I wasn't a good debater because I was a little meaner back then. And so I kind of debated to win. <laughs> How else do you debate? Well, they say you're not supposed to try to win, <laughs> but I did. Uh, awesome. All right, cool. So next question, what scares you? To be honest, losing control. And I mean bodily. I, I, I come from a family who, of people who have Alzheimer's. So I'm afraid of getting Alzheimer's or... Uh, or ALS, to be honest, losing control of your body or your mind. Yeah. It terrifies me. It, yeah. No, 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 uh, no question. It is terrifying to think, think of that. Okay. What surprises you? When either someone is just a complete asshole or when someone goes completely out of their way to do something for a stranger, donate a kidney. When someone you didn't think was going to help you helps you. I, small story. I was moving from San Diego to LA and I had this car and I had a mattress on the car and the rope break and the mattress fell in the freeway and I ran out to get it and three people stopped to help me. And that surprised me because I'm not sure I would have stopped. <laughs> and, and these guys stopped. One guy had a, had a rope and he gave it to me and another guy helped me carry it off. And that surprises me when people actually are human. Yeah. Sometimes people can be surprising. Yeah. Both, both, both sides of that sort of spectrum. But yeah, to go to the other side, I'm surprised when someone can be so cruel and so mean to someone and not own it. I'm surprised when people don't admit they're wrong. Yeah. That stuff shocks me. It is, it, is sh- it is shocking. Okay, Steve, if you feel comfortable sharing, when was the last time you cried and why? Well, last week, and my daughter Julia was struggling with something uh, having to do with her mom. And I cried with her Mm. and it was a tough moment. Yeah. I I do a lot of crying over nature. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. Okay. So let's, uh, let's shift gears and talk about something positive. Hopefully let's talk about a book. What book have you recommended more than any other book and why? Iron John. It's a book. It's, it's the book that sent me off on whatever soul searching I did. And for the life of me, I can't even remember. I, I, I've said his, the author's name a million times and all of a sudden I've forgotten it. But it's a, it's a book about a mythical tale of a boy who has to steal a key from underneath his mother's pillow so he can leave his village and go with his father and hunt this giant iron giant in the jungle. And with his father, he attacks this giant and he gets scarred. And that's what brings him into manhood is he's the key is his mother's permission to leave her side and to go with his father and become a man for the first time. And the scar is the ritualistic um, remembrance of that moment. And that's how you become a man. And, and that myth has been told for centuries. And then it's told by this author in a way that he plugged it into modern day society and how that may be missing from father-son relationships, which I had missing in my father-son mm-hmm. relationship. And it, it's a, if you're into that kind of thing or you just want to have a good read, I love that book and I recommend it to everybody. When did you first read it? First read it in 1989 or 90 before I'd moved to California. Put a link in the show notes and okay. uh, include, be sure to include the author that you forgot. Okay. 
all right. So See, I, I'm, a, I'm an idiot savant. Who has been the most inspirational person in your life and why? Well, I'll go back to my grandfather. And I know it's kind of an easy layup kind of thing to do, but I'm telling you, this is a guy who was a, a mid-level manager for AT&T when it was, or Ma Bell when it was all one company, living in Ames, Iowa, in a small town, nondescript. No one will ever know who this guy is. And he changed an entire region of the country by himself. And he did it with death, when he, in the face of death threats and something that was not popular at all. And I'm telling you that find, I found that story out about him when he died. I didn't mm. even know it. I loved him because he was my grandpa. I go to his funeral and my uncle tells me the story. You didn't know tell the funeral itself. No. Oh. I found out at the funeral. My uncle tells me. Wow. And Is this your mom's side or dad's my side? My mom's side. Okay. And my mom's side are all Irish homesteaders that came to this country a couple generations ago and built farms and fed people and took care of people. And they they all lived to 100 and lost their minds at 75. Mm. Uh, but great salt of the earth people. And my grandfather never did anything for attention, never did. He just, I mean, he just inspires me. I wish everyone on earth was like him. Yeah. Oh, sounds like an amazing, amazing human being. Yep. Speaking of amazing human beings, if you could spend one hour with anyone, living or dead, who would it be and why? I've thought about this probably a million times. I think, honestly, now my answer is George Washington because of the current state of our politics. George Washington was the first president of the United States. And they said to him, hey, if you want to be king, you can be king. You can have anything you want. We're going to call you your majesty, his highness, the president. And he goes, no, 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 that's not what we're here for. That's not what we fought and died for. I'm a servant of the people. I'll serve four or eight years. And I answer to you. You don't have to answer to me. And he refused kingship when he could have taken it. To me, that's character. I'd like to sit down and just get to know the guy. Yeah. I just find that amazing. When, when you hear stories of all power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Here's a guy who had absolute power. And he goes, no, no, no. I'm a servant. Love that. Yeah. Servant leadership. Without a doubt. <laughs> so cool. All right. So if you had the chance, if you could get in your DeLorean, go back in time, hmm. what would you tell your 20-year-old self? How did I not see that question coming? <laughs> <laughs> stay home. I would have told myself to stay home. I, I grew up in Connecticut. I had a crush on a girl, Kathy Lundberg. I could have gotten into real estate and made a fortune in Greenwich, Connecticut, selling $2 million houses. I would have been safe. I'll be honest with you, Billy. I'm grateful for everything I've gone through. I've had an the last 27 years of my life have been 10 lifetimes. But it's come at a lot of costs. Uh, and some of them are, are still too painful to even talk about. And I think I might say, just stay home. Interesting. Wow, man, that's deep. That's, that's uh, an interesting lead into the next question, which is, do you have any regrets in life? And if so, what are they? I want to dovetail off what I've said before. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have listened. <laughs> so, <laughs> knowing that I wouldn't listen, I could say that. Uh, any regrets? I mean, that's um, a whole podcast right there, what you just yeah. shared. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I've got billions of regrets. I, I have so many regrets. Um, I have spent a lifetime second guessing myself. When you're raised by a father who devalues instincts, kindness, connection. He's the opposite of what I strive for. You second guess yourself and you wonder if what you're feeling and thinking and doing is the right thing. And so 
because of second guessing yourself, you make poor choices sometimes. And so I've made some seriously poor choices. I do tell the Florida story a lot. You've heard it yourself. Not going to Florida and following a 15-year built-up television career to its ultimate goal, which is to be on a morning news broadcast, was probably the stupidest thing I've ever done professionally. No, it's the stupidest thing I've ever done professionally, without a doubt. And I, I think that's probably one of the things that I regret to this day. What do you feel you learned from that experience specifically that, that has helped you perhaps in, in your, well, your life? Well, look what I just said. I stayed home, right? So, so here I am in California. I'm not gonna, I'm not, I, I, I just did what I was going to advise the 20 year old to do. I stayed home. I stayed in California. I played it safe. I didn't go. I didn't say to my wife, we're moving, pack up. I don't care. I stayed home and lost a whole career because of it. Yeah. So I think, do you know who got that job? Do you know who that person is? No, I don't. I did talk to the news director after, and I begged him to hire me. He said, we got somebody real good. Uh, but I, I know I never found out who got it. Cause it's always fascinating. The whole like sort of sliding doors or butterfly mm -hmm. effect or whatever, like yeah. one little thing changes. Everything else changes. As a result. Without a doubt. That is my sliding doors moment. That's why I always go to that as the regret, but you know what? Look, I stayed in California. I met my current wife who I adore and I have what I have. And so, you know, it's, it's such a strange conversation, regrets, because I've got a million of them and yet I wouldn't be exactly where I am and I wouldn't know what I know. And I'm glad I didn't stay home. I'm glad I came here. I'm glad I've done all the things I've done because for all the accompanying pain that I've had along the way, you're right. I've done some fucking amazing stuff and I wouldn't trade it. Fair enough, man. And it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing to wrestle with because it's like, when you say regret, does that mean that you want it to be different? No, it doesn't mean that necessarily. What it means is that you've felt either remorse or pain or like you should have perhaps done something different. But at the same time, if you had the option to change it, that's a different question. And doesn't they, don't, they don't have to tie it together so neatly. Like if you could snap your fingers and you stayed home, Okay, then look at what your life right. could be. It's the whole, Who knows? It's the whole uh, you know, miracle on 34th Street sort right. of thing. So Yeah, those are my two sliding door moments, moving to California and not moving to, to Florida. Oh, yeah, man. Good, good. good man. Okay, we talked about role models. Now I want to talk about mentors, which is, 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 is nuanced, but there is difference there. Who are your greatest mentors and what did you learn from them? One is somebody that everybody knows. His name is Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's the astrophysicist that he hosts Star Talk Radio and he does the new version of the Carl Sagan um, show that they did in the 70s. And I'm trying to summon the name now, the science show. God, what is wrong with me today? Anyway, Neil deGrasse Tyson was my college professor. I took astronomy from him at Maryland. What? Yeah. Come yeah. on. It's true. It's true. He taught at University of Maryland. No wonder you got the bug. I, it helped. It definitely helped. Uh, the, it's one, ridiculous. Are you one of the serious? best. Yeah, one of the best teachers I ever had. I mean, look, a thousand people in the class. I never actually met him except for office hours. Like we never talked after class. Nothing. But he stood on that stage with his microphone, and he he was hysterical. He would do all these funny things to explain what science was, and I think that might have been the progenitor for me of here's how you reach people. It's not well, you have to follow the science, and here's what science is. It's let's make it fun, and he's a fun, fun guy. And so I think I've always carried that with me. I, I never forgot that. I did sit down with him once at office hours because I was struggling. I, I, was, I think I was getting a C or a C plus in the class. 
and he's just like, well, here's, here's how you need to look at it. And he just kind of shifted the way I look. He goes, don't worry about getting everything right. He goes, just work on what you know and get that right. And I just remember thinking, God, that's such a fascinating thing to say. And he was just a great guy. And then years went by and then suddenly I saw him on TV one day. I'm like, oh my God, that was my professor. <laughs> he's a mentor that doesn't know he's a mentor. Yeah. Well, right? that's, that's okay. That's yeah. okay. And there's lots of, there's lots of stories and examples that fit into that bucket. That's a great mentor. You, you said that you'll, you'll share that one. Is there any others that immediately come to mind that would be, that would be, you know, I, I wish I could say so. I, I think I tend to glean something from everybody. I think I see everybody as a mentor. I think you're a mentor for me. I think you know, to come into Varengo, a new company, and to see the way that you, you know, you were a manager when I got there and you got catapulted to director of training and you've never really done anything like that before. And what you brought to it was phenomenal. I learned so much from that. And so I consider you to be that. I, yeah, I think I look around and anybody that seems to have something that they're confident about, I, I, I'm inspired by. It's hard to pick one person. I yeah, think. no, it is. And the confidence piece is an interesting one too, because as you indicated earlier, which I actually agree with, is mo everyone's just figuring this out. We're all winging it. Yeah. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And, and yet there are some people who, for whatever reason, can gain and showcase or exude the confidence that, for whatever reason, allows you to want to follow them and mm. to perhaps believe that, even though they may be figuring it out, they maybe are either further along or they make you feel like they do have a pretty good grasp on whatever it is that they're so confident about. Yeah, and I and I believe everybody's got something, right? You've you've got a, a phenomenal ability to connect with people, and you do the same thing, Billy. You you make you take lemons and make lemonade. You're you're very resourceful, and you've done a lot of different things. You directed a film, and and you worked. At Tesla, for God's sakes, and you led a, a huge team at Tesla, and now you're doing this this podcast. So, you know, I find that to be fascinating, and and you're right on that road too. You know? Thanks, man. I asked you this earlier. It was more, what are you most proud of from your career in entertainment? Now I'm going to ask you, just generally speaking, what achievement are you most proud of in life? All right. Well, this one's a slam dunk for me. This is my children, my my kids. I. I when I got divorced, I was going through a divorce at the time that two other guys that I knew were doing the same things. And they said, yeah, I've got my kids every other weekend. And that was enough for them. And I just thought, my God, how, how could you not want to see your child? I was astonished. I know. And they were fine with it. And I was like, no, I went to court for a year just to get 50-50. And I fought for every minute that I have with my children. And what I'm proud of is that the young women that, you know, Ellie, my oldest, just turned 14. I can't believe it. 14. And she's a woman. She's a young woman. And and the, she's not just a young woman. She's a good person. And Julia has her thing, but she's a good person. And I'm immensely proud of them. And Ellie's thoughtful and she volunteers. She's she's my grandfather. She She takes care of people and she she cares and her friends all call her mom. She's the mom of the group. She's an old soul. <laughs> Julia is, is crazy and wild and different. You know, we all carved pumpkins. There's six pumpkins. Her, you can tell which ones is her. Is her. <laughs> it's painted. It's got stars on it. And she's just different. Oh, I love that. And, and I'm, and I'm proud of the fact that I'm not making her wrong for that because I, because that's not how I was raised. And, and what I'm working on is is to say to her, you know, embrace it. Be as crazy as you want. You're going to be fine. And 
and I'm proud of her because she's starting to embrace it. I think yeah. she doesn't get that on the other side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's easy. It's easy to fall into the trap of making it seem like it's not okay because yeah. we're conditioned. That's weird. That's not normal. You're yeah. not going to. And, and it, from a parent's point of view, and you know this as a parent, you're worried for your child. Sure. Right. The world's tough out there. Yeah. I want my daughter Julia to walk out and be different, wear two different socks, and you know I love it. Yeah, no, no, no. Embrace, embrace it. Well, we've learned a lot about you. I'm curious, what may surprise the audience that we haven't yet learned about Steve Truitt? Well, I have been asked this question before, and I, I, I want to try to a- answer a, a different way than the answer that I've given before. But I'm not sure I can actually come up with anything else. I think I'm I'm such an open book, and like I wear my emotions on my sleeve, and I talk a lot, and people know who I am. I don't think there's many surprises. But I would say that, and I, I've I've said this before in other interviews, you'd be surprised how quickly I can react to a family member or someone I love being threatened, to the point of like if someone threatens my daughter, I'll put them down and they won't get up. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I will viciously protect the people that I that you love. care about. And I know I've got that in me. Like, I'm not a violent person. I'm, I'm a pacifist. I'm, I'm kind of a nice goofball, but hurt someone I love and you'll, you will regret it. And I, and if someone attacks someone that I love, yeah, I won't stop until they can't stop until they can't move. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Well, I mean, I think you, despite being, as you said, the fun kind of goofball type, type guy, you also have an incredible deep caring for those that are close to you mm-hmm. and we already know that you can be reactive yeah right, right. So, exactly. so so let's put two and two together yeah. last question steve this is sort of open-ended do with it what you may <laughs> and that is simply this it's anything else you'd like to share with this audience a uh, kind of open open-ended question well i think you know to speak to the the nature of the podcast itself how can we discuss insights at a level where your listeners are going to have their own. The reason that you're doing this is not for fame or anything else. You are you are genuinely someone who picked a topic and said, I want to bring this to the world. And so what I would say is to anybody listening, you know, just like the body has a blueprint for perfect health, the body knows exactly what it needs to be healthy and what perfect health looks like. It's what we introduce to it that makes us sick. The same is true for the mind. And so if you seek that which works against your best interests, you will suffer. If you seek that which works in your favor and helps you grow and have insights and enjoy this short time that we have on this planet. If you become that person, you will have insights that will change your life. And the more you seek, the more you'll get. And sometimes you'll fall on your face and sometimes you'll make a mistake. And sometimes the sun will come up and you can't believe how beautiful the world is. Mm. And that's life. And, you know, I always say this to everyone I, I work with when I coach, don't be afraid of sadness because it's, it's an emotion we can't always be happy. It's that constant striving for happiness that makes us miserable. Because when we are happy, it's like, this will last forever. And then when it doesn't, we're so bummed about it. And when we're sad, all we want to do is be happy again. And we're never in present. So ride the waves. Be happy, be sad, be jealous, be pissed off, 
be thrilled, be excited, be terrified, like live your life, enjoy your emotions, seek insights and be the best version of yourself that you can be because you already know what that is anyway. You just have to get out of your own way sometimes. Oh man, drop the mic. Stevie T, thank you for spilling that wisdom. Uh, you did not disappoint. I had such a good time talking with you, connecting. You know how much I care about you and our friendship. I'm thank so you. grateful to have you in my life. And you have provided so many fascinating stories that I didn't know and shared some of the ones that I did know for the audience. And I'm just so grateful to have you on Inside Out. Thanks, Billy. It's been amazing. And I love you. Love you, brother. Thank you for listening to this episode of Insight Out. I hope you enjoyed the show and I really hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in your career, in your business, or in your life. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcast platform. This is extremely helpful and I can't tell you how much I would appreciate it. Also, if you haven't checked out our website yet, you can find us on the interweb at insightoutshow.com. On the site, you'll find tons of great content, including all of our podcast episodes, videos, blog posts, and the all-important link to support this show through Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's an amazing platform that helps creators gain the support they need to continue creating. And remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.